I'm Billy. I'm Drew. And this is the first Pilot Club of 2021. Happy New Year. Episode 20. Drew, do you have any New Year's resolutions? (laughs) Do more potting. Do more (laughs) potting. Perfect. You're in the right place. Pot every day. I want to get back Pod to nine day. I want to get back to my resolution I had last year to lose weight by traveling to a station each time I lost a kilogram. Right. Were you traveling across the states at the moment? I well, actually, maybe we should tell, New York. Maybe, <laughs> maybe we should tell the audience about this. Just the brief aside. Me and a friend of ours, Rob Chu, aka Choff, Hi Choff, are both trying to lose weight, and um, Drew has made an imaginary road trip, and there's a common destination every five kilos, but in the interim. Um, every time we lose half a kilo, we message Drew, and Drew gives us a destination, so we kind of map our weight yeah. loss. A notable silence on your part, Billy. Yeah, I'm still in New York. <laughs> I'm still in New York. Um, I mean, haven't got too many messages. Yeah, I mean, I probably think, like Chof had a bit more to lose, um, but he he has made his way to Cape Cod, Boston, Bangor, Maine, and he he's been in Montreal for a while. Yeah, I haven't yeah. heard much because my original plan was to. You've enjoyed the festive season. Yeah, I mean. My original plan was to learn an American county in the capital of that county for every half kilo I lost, but I get that wouldn't work for anyone. Anyway, this is a television <laughs> podcast. Um, welcome back for our 20th episode. We're going to start this week with the series, The Third Day. Um, it's just worth maybe mentioning, isn't it, Drew, for our listeners, that we're doing this on Australian time. So we tend to focus on series when they drop in Australia. That's right. So this has been out for a while in the United States and in the United Kingdom, but it's only it actually arrived belatedly in Australia. Mm. Um, it was on yeah. Fox for it's a while. A, a bit of a stiff middle finger for those who were looking forward to the 12-hour live theatrical event. Well, this is the thing. So Chapter this, two. The series has, a, has quite an unusual structure. It has a collection of episodes um, directed by one director, um, Mark Munden, three episodes. And it has three later episodes directed by Philippa Lothorpe. But in between, there was a special, is it 10 or 12-hour live 12 episode? 12-hour live episode, yeah. Um, which I think you can actually see from this pilot a little bit. I mean, the pilot feels a bit like a live event in some ways. I mm. think it feels very improvised. It's a bit atonal. And it, it's shot in a very... I mean, it, it's shot in a very stylized way, but it's also got a kind of off-the-cuff verite manner. So you can actually see how this would give way to a live event. Yes. I, 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 look, I'll give a plot summary just before we get into it. Um, it's funny, I saw this, I think, just after I'd got up from an afternoon nap. So I'm not sure if I was really disoriented <laughs> or the series was disoriented. You, you kind of have two separate threads. Like Jude Law is the protagonist. On the one hand, we meet Jude Law in what appears to be a kind of fugue state um, on the side of a road talking to his wife wandering through a forest depositing a, um, a child's piece of clothing in a stream and then coming across a girl who appears to be being hung by a young boy that's the kind of first part of it and that weird fugue subjectivity continues for most of the episode on the other hand he then returns this girl to her home which is the island of O.C. off the English coast and is only connected to the mainland by a causeway. And once he's there, he can't get back for various reasons. Um, and I'm not sure he starts to suspect, but the audience starts to suspect there's some kind of folk horror going on here mm. along the lines there's of... Some sort the, of mysterious happening. Yeah, the, the Wicker Man. Also reminded me of the Kettering incident, the way in which it's shot. Um, Drew, I felt really ambivalent about this. I... I wanted to love it. There was so much here <laughs> that is in my wheelhouse in terms of the way that space is set up, the uncanniness, the gothic style. Um, I think, on the other hand, it used a, a kind of a way, you know, it used a kind of style of shooting and an approach that's quite common in contemporary television that I'm, I'm really not a fan of. The the handheld camera close up to the face the whole time approach. It does. There are some exceptions paired with a really hyper-saturated or desaturated palette that at times made it feel almost animated. And that took me a bit out of it in some ways, but oh, wow, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm not sure if that was intentional. What did you think? Did you love well, it? I, I, thought, I thought this had, for me, mm. amazing style. Okay, substance not as not as high quality okay um i thought i was i was blown away by the stylistics of this I mean, of this pilot in particular don't get me wrong i mean i thought stylistically it was incredible but i just it wasn't to my taste i guess like it was strange because on the one hand you had you have this series which is so dependent upon physical space right like it's so de- it makes such a big deal of 
the island, the island's difference and distance from the shore, the causeway, the precise times when the causeway... And the causeway is amazing. <laughs> we, we learn a lot about that causeway. The causeway is, and apparently it's a real causeway. It's, it's, it's real. Yeah, the island... Wow. The, I wonder Incredible. How, I wonder how the island's residents felt about the series. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, you have not this... Sorry, it's not a very flattering portrayal of OC no, and its residents. No, it's, it's, there's a lot of issues with the representation of OC in the series. Um, yeah, I just felt like on the other hand, you it's had... Set, it's set back the cause of OC tourism, I think, a ab- couple of decades. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Although um, that causeway... Although the causeway is... Yeah, I mean, I guess... Yeah, I, I guess I feel ambivalent. Like, you know, it, it's strange in that it moves between two very liminal spaces with no real anchor, right? So it starts in the middle of this forest with no clear sense of why we're there or why the girl's there. It then moves to an island that the island's so kind of flat and featureless that it doesn't really have any coordinates of its own. And the space that connects them is also kind of liminal. This, oh, this I causeway don't, I don't that appears. Describe the island as being flat or featureless. The island's got such exquisite little microcosms that they they venture yeah, through. Yeah, and... maybe maybe I mean from yeah, maybe I mean even mean from a distance. It's hard to get a sense of it. Yeah, look, I don't know. I'm kind of confounded by it. I just feel like for a series that was so so dependent on the precise spatial layout of it all, there was something about the style which I found quite aspatial. Or, and again, that just that kind of. The hypersaturated style, the constant mobile close-ups of faces. Mm. Maybe you know that—that's what it's meant. Like it's meant to mm. be disorienting. So well, it I worked. think I think uh, Hugh. Um, sorry, what's his name? Jude Law. Jude Law. Yep. Okay. <laughs> I think he's Hugh Grant for some reason. I'm I'm I'm, I'm still undone. It's funny. We, um, um, <laughs> we just as a sidebar, we rewatched the holiday a week ago, and you, you realise how much Jude Law is channeling Hugh Grant <laughs> all the time in everything when you watch that film. Anyway, that is true. Yeah. That is true. So I mean, it's a real Jude Law vehicle. Yeah. Um, He's front and centre. Like mm. there are a lot of extreme close-ups of him. There's Lots, a lot of, sort of yeah. these fisheye lenses, you know, low-angle shots yep. of his face moving through yep. the forest. I think it's trying to simulate his dissociative state. So he's in a state of, you know, a kind of like you say, almost a fugue state post, you know, some immersed, trauma. yeah, marinated in grief from the the death of his son, as we and, later and find out. And something it does quite well is that process of emerging from the fugue state is fused with his first apprehensions that something's not right on the island. Yes. So his subjectivity is fused with the island. Like, that's that's very effective. In the same way that we're positioned weirdly between this abstract forest and this abstract island, we're, we're caught between him coming out of the fugue state and him recognising what's going on. That Yeah, that's that right. does work really well. And he, to a certain extent, he's an unre- unreliable narrator as yep. well. So we're not aware of whether, or we're not conscious of whether, you know, he has genuine grounds for suspicion of these mm supposedly innocent townsfolk or whether there is really a deeper darker mystery going on in this in this island and the space and it, it clearly like you said uh, appears to be channeling that that tradition of folk horror yep. in english film in particular i'm not aware of whether there's been a, a folk horror television series I'm thinking thus far. Like the, the kettering incident has a similar feel i mean you that's think this is influenced by the kettering incident well it, it's it's funny how similar it is like that you know the premise of that it, it's about a woman whose friend vanishes when she's like 15 and then the action shifts to london where she's a surgeon who has periodic blackouts and then suddenly she wakes up from a blackout and she's in the tasmanian wilderness she has no okay. memory no memory of taking the plane no memory of hiring a car so that dissociative like fugue state, it, it does mm. feel a bit... And that was quite big in Britain, actually. Like I think it screened in Britain before it screened in Australia. So it did remind me okay. a bit of that. Um, so plagiarism. You're calling plagiarism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just... It's funny because I'm, I'm intrigued because I, on paper I expected to kind of love this. And I'm, I'm interested why I didn't. Like I'm inter- maybe it was just I wasn't in the most receptive mindset. I'm not sure. Mm. Well, I, thought, I thought a lot of the... The suspicion about the townsfolk and the, the quite sort of hammy acting on the part it's of the very townsfolk broad. was was you know suboptimal, and I thought it didn't live up to the really enhanced you know incredible stylistics of this show to a certain extent. So it, I, I hear what you're saying there. I was really torn um, at the end of this pilot as to whether I would continue or not, and there were just a couple of things that just just pushed me over the edge. The first was just the, to to continue to continue. Okay. So the first was just the the sur- slightly surrealism of the. The, the depiction mm. of the island, that the liminal space of the causeway. The causeway is, of, is incredible. Yeah. 
uh, the crepuscular shots of the island and yeah. you know the, I mean, the I love, beaches just and on that shore. causeway i love the fact that the causeway is not even straight yes it's like a curving <laughs> causeway so there are little bits of it that remain above tide in the distance <laughs> this yeah. is a show that realizes its strengths and yep. the strengths really lie in yep. in the space and the causeway yep. and and the actors it's got a really great cast of actors here yeah um maybe they're not doing all their finest work but they're all nonetheless pretty compelling it doesn't it does yeah it doesn't have that em, kind of emergent eeriness of i mean in the wicker man what you almost get is a kind of heightened normality or a yes. heightened, you know, picaresque kind of quality. Whereas here, they're kind of, the people are kind of overtly weird yes. from the outset, and you get you get images of sacrifice yes. and stuff like I that. I was also very aware that Hugh, uh, Jude Law's character ran a gardening business. Yes, there was lots of discussion of <laughs> the gardening. There was business. lots of and lots of repeated discussion yeah. when he was trying to get off the I island mean, and so forth. And so. I, w- I wonder if that's they're, they're trying to solve or address one of the most ambitious things about the series, which is that you have this kind of weird world of the island and you have a protagonist who's meant to anchor us in normality. But the protagonist, we, we, we really learn almost nothing about his context apart from a few hints. Mm. And they obviously want to keep his identity in suspension. So I, I wonder if the gardening business, all the talk about the gardening business, was just their way of trying to give a little bit of backstory about him without revealing too much. Although I'm concerned at the same time that the island would just kind of become a projection of his grief or a projection of his, like, psychopathy. And there is quite a bit. There's there's an an element of that, isn't there? Full disclosure, I've actually finished this series. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so what I will say is that um, the second episode becomes incredible in in a certain way. So there's a real... It it sort of takes flight in Mm. in the second episode. And Mm. partly there's a sort of summer solstice... uh, I guess what he might describe it a, a festival or something along those lines, and, and it becomes even more heightened the surrealism. And, okay, you know the characters take LSD and they go through wander the island in in a um, on a trip, and it's it's pretty incredible. Can, I think you can some see of the, the, the solstice thing like working right because you know the whole thing is such a tipsy kind of queasy quality, and as you said, the crepuscular element it always feels like it's set. It's like you know, it reminded me of Midsummer. Like, not yes. just the folk element, but that sense of being set during a kind of extended daylight or extended twilight. So I can I can yeah. see how a solstice would work kind of perfectly for at, that. At times it reminded me a little of True Detective as well. Yeah, yeah. With that, that mystery element combined with a little bit of surrealism, the hallucinations. Yeah. There's, there's a, a really intense series of hallucin- hallucinations in episode two. Mm. I mean, so almost half the episode is mm. hallucination. So it's a very experimental you see, that's, TV series. That, that's something that can kind of take me out of it as well, when there is too much of a hallucinatory quality. Although that's said the hallucinations at the end of this episode were really powerful like mm. they were genuinely surreal and genuinely mm. dissonant what's interesting about this did, series by the way, sorry did you watch a 10 hour episode well what i was going to say is what, what's interesting about this uh. series is the way it's it's dropped in uh. australia at least on streaming is that the 12 hour so it's split into three chapters mm. uh, divided by the season so the first three episodes are charting summer when you uh, jude law Lands on the island, mm. rise on the island. The second self-contained twelve-hour theatrical event, which was which was a live event, mm. um, was streamed online, um, is is not available as part of the streaming mm. package. So I guess losing the live element, it's just been excised. Would, would you have watched the entire twelve? Well, hours? I actually have. In full disclosure, I've watched I watched highlights of the okay, twelve. Right, that, the that 12 seems hour. like maybe the way to go. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's again set over the the oh. autumn festival. Oh. And um, features Florence Florence Welsh from Florence and the Machine. Oh right, um, which, okay. So there's a lot of uh, power moves from Florence and the Machine yeah. in this. You're, and you're a big Florence and the Machine fan <laughs> from from way back, Dark right? Days. Yeah, love it. <laughs> and then the, the latter episodes are in winter, mm-hmm. and they're focused more on the mother, who's played by Naomi Harris. Okay. So they they've got a completely different director, a different stylistic palette, mm-hmm. palette, and I think maybe it's I suppose they're slightly weaker in my mm-hmm. in my book because they they lose their surreal. Right. They lose that surrealistic tone mm. um, that really, um, I think this this show excelled in the first mm. the first two thirds. So look, it's it is a flawed series. I don't think the the plot is really stands up to the direction and, no, the, and the style. And, and, and like I said, I'm kind of intrigued by what why I, found, I mean, you know, maybe it's just that I found the direction distantiating, which it like which it is meant to be. Like I found it disorienting, which it is meant to be. I just I found it hard. Maybe it is a bit of cloak and dagger stuff because the plot is not great. Yeah, and I, f- I found it hard to get in the world. And maybe that is what it is. Like I sense that, you know, the style was doing so much of the heavy lifting. Lifting it was almost kind of mystifying a plot that wasn't there. Yeah. Um, yeah, but normally I love. I love series about a character who basically has to explore a surreal space. I mean, you know, a lot of ways Jude Law feels like an avatar here more than a character, and like mm. that I tend to enjoy as well. 
Yeah, I'm Did curious. you find it scary? I found it eerie mm. at times, but at times I felt maybe I, what I'm saying is although I thought the style was incredible at times, I found it laboured in a way that took away from the eeriness as well. Like I felt like there was such a deliberate effort to estrange you from what was going on that it didn't allow for me that that eeriness to kind of kind of creep through naturally. But I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm curious. It's always interesting to watch a series that you think you will love and not love. So I'm curious to continue watching just for that reason and yeah. to, especially because these first three episodes seem like a relatively self-contained thing mm. i think i'm uh, folk horror is a genre i really attach yeah, to it's great and but again like what i like about folk horror is the kind of way it's a horror of intensified normality which i think mm. from the beginning this world was so abnormal that it didn't quite draw me in in the way that genre normally does yeah I don't know. yeah it, it, i thought this this captured uh, a certain element of folk horror, which is sort of the carnival, the, yeah, carnival, the carnivalesque, carnivalesque quality of folk mm. horror, that exaggerated kind of hallucinogenic quality of yeah. folk horror, which does come into folk horror a lot of the time. And, and it, it, this, mm. I think the series does see strength when it does focus on that element. Mm. And you can understand why the 12-hour event was based around a, a festival, that, a folk festival. That makes so. sense. Because I think, I think for me, that's the part of folk horror I tend to find the least eerie. Like I know it's mm. an integral part of it. Yeah, or I, I like it best when it's kind of a low-level thing rather than as overtly odd as it is here. But look, you know, for whatever reason, it, it's it's always intriguing to see a show that doesn't strike you as you expected it would. So You I enjoyed mean, The Causeway, at least. The, well, the, I mean, you know, I enjoyed... It's funny, like, I enjoyed a lot about it. I just... Something about... Something about the sheer strangeness of it or the kind of sheer hallucinatory quality but didn't quite convince me on first viewing but i'm, I'm definitely open mm. to watching more so yeah I, i'm definitely not an out i'll probably return yeah. to it at some point including the 12 hour live stream theatrical well, I, event. that's interesting isn't it like I, I i'm curious like how many people watch that <laughs> in its entirety like do I think people dip in and out of it or i think that that's the ultimate that's the ultimate, ultimate background flex. watch you yeah, know yeah. while you're doing yeah, your yeah. laundry or you know Washing or, the dishes. Or a good flex. I mean, I, I thought it was the best episode. <laughs> like, that'd be great. You, oh, you didn't say that yet. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Like, I mean, if you love the regular episodes, oh, you'll love the 12-hour episode. Like that. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I'm i intrigued by it. So, yeah, I'll, I'll probably continue, but I'm not a hard in. Yeah, well, I would say I'm, I'm already in. I've already watched it. Mm. So I recommend it for those who are fans of either the folk horror genre mm. Or I want to see something that's slightly different, slightly surreal, taking a few stylistic risks mm. with you, you know, your standard miniseries. Mm. So for that reason, I was in. Cool. Okay. Well, our next series. What do you know? Our favourite genre again, Billy. True crime. True crime. I feel like, <laughs> what are the chances? I feel like this Here is we kind, are again. <laughs> this is becoming an unofficial true crime television podcast. It does, t- it does seem to be disproportionately represented, doesn't it? Are we just living through a true crime moment? I think we are. I think we are. Let's tell ourselves that. We, we, are, we are living through a true crime moment. I think this is the Netflix true crime moment in a certain way, but we, we are... We are certainly not ignoring any true yeah. crime that's coming out. We're becoming the kind of people who talk to other people about true crime documentaries at parties. <laughs> just Often, go straight to true I crime know documentary. one of your sentence starters, one of your intro- introduction, you know, uh, sentence starters is, um, who's your favourite serial killer? That's so. not true. I just, that, that, is, that is so not true. Um, but it is true. I'm, I'm, I mean, that, that's not a, William, that's not a question I ask, but I am, I'm not, I'm not great at small talk. I often go straight to middle talk and sometimes I do it via true crime yeah. and I've learned it's not always the best way no, to strike no, up a conversation. No, it can. Who do you think killed John Bonet? <laughs> it can be a distancing but when it works, uh, mechanism, yes. Oh boy, does That's it right. When you meet, boy, does when it you meet work? a fellow true crime aficionado. Well, that's actually how the My Favourite Murder podcast started. Two right. people at a party talking about true crime. Okay. They clicked, they talked for eight hours and then they made the world's best, you know, like one of the most remunerative podcasts. So when it works, that's true. it works. That's true. Well, we could talk about true crime all yeah. day, that, that, but we're limited. Be, that'll be our side, our side podcast. A side hustle. True crime club. <laughs> but we're limited to, I suppose, a quarter of this pod uh, dealing with true crime. But speaking of that and that interest we have, just before you get into it, this was a case, The Ripper, I knew very little about going yes. into it, which made this really powerful. I think that was really interesting. So this was a very notorious yep. uh, serial killer case. Um, I'd heard echoes of it whispers of it as a very famous serial killer case i know i i knew of the yorkshire ripper i didn't know anything about uh him or his crimes and i wonder if this shows between this and dares that we tend to have a proclivity for more like american true crime that because i feel like british true crime and these big british cases yes. are a bit of a blind spot yes that's right i think maybe because a lot of i mean britain's a, a bit more narrow high density <laughs> more closeted yeah. so it doesn't have that grain sort of spatial yeah, sweep of the american i agree the american true crime epic but 
I think this series did. This was incredible. And I mean, I th- w- what a way to find out about this crime. I can't think of a better medium or a better vehicle to find out about this crime than this series. Yes. It was fantastic. So a bit of background yep. uh, to this series. It's a British true crime docu-series directed by Jesse Vile and Elena Wood. And it's really f- well directed. It's four-part miniseries, yeah. yeah. And it, it recounts the murders of 13 women uh, that took place in West Yorkshire and Manchester between 1975 and 1980. And it was carried out by a serial killer known as the Yorkshire Ripper, who mm. identified himself as mm. uh, you know, progenitor of, of Jack the Ripper. It's interesting how these early serial killer cases like this in Kolchak, they, before the serial killer is fully understood, they keep on reaching back to Jack the Ripper yes, as a kind of archetype to understand them I know, as a social phenomenon. There's a weird blank spot, isn't yeah. there, in terms of the history of mm. serial killers. You know, Jack the Ripper and then, what, the 1970s? Yeah, exactly. You know, um, yeah. Now, what's going on? Mm. Um, you know? Serial killer, they dropped the ball in the 70-odd you know, intervening yeah, years. That's true, yeah. Uh, but they came back with interventions in yes. the 70s. Yeah. Um, so 70s golden age of the serial killer, yep. no doubt. And this series, I think one of the potential weaknesses of a series like this is because the crime is now so old mm. that it would really rely excessively on talking heads mm. and archival footage. And it does, to a certain extent, rely on those two things, but it's no weaker for it. No, well, I guess because the crimes were so sensational and so shocking, there's a huge amount of coverage both of, you know, the general occurrence and the, you know, response of people in the neighbourhood and of the actual police investigation. Yes. So it's, it's full of incredible juxtapositions between police officers reflecting on the case in the present and news footage and professional police footage of them investigating and discussing the case in the past. Like, it's amazing how, how fluidly it moves between past and present yeah. using, you know... And I think what's what's stuff. what's really interesting about this case is just the sheer duration of the killing, yes. 1975 to 1980. It has yep. the grand sweep of some of those you know epic serial killer movies yep. where you you have time and mm. historical evolution playing a role. Mm. And in some ways, the archival footage here is really strength because what it's charting and what the Ripper is really doing is he's he's exposing and shining a light on you know uh, post-industrial decline in yep. some ways in Northern Britain. And his serial killing is sort of symptomatic of that. I mean, it's probably not ways. his primary motivation post-industrial deconstruction, <laughs> but, the, but that's certainly the way they frame it. I mean, look, I, I agree. Like, I thought, you know, with a, with a case like this, the two biggest challenges to a documentary are to capture the pace of the crime and the space of the crime. Mm. And this does it brilliantly. I mean, it, I mean, I thought it captures the space in three great ways. Like, it firstly really captures the location of the crime, which is like mm. Chapel Town. They describe it as an old Victorian neighbourhood turned into an Afro-Caribbean slum. Mm. It does a great job of capturing the decline of Yorkshire yes. in the 70s. And one of the police officers, I think it's, or maybe a reporter describes it as the first town to catch the sickness of the post-industrial age. Yes. And it also really captures the piecemeal nature of the police districts that comprise this area. Mm. So it's, it's acutely sensitive to the spatial parameters and on top of that, it really captures the way in which the serial killer's territory and modus operandi expands beyond Chapel Town or around the fringes of Chapel Town. Courtesy of the freeways. The, the freeways, motorways, or I should say motorways. The, the housing estates yeah. and all the little ways in which his, his fixation with sex workers in that area starts to spill over into more urbane or, you know, inverted commas, civilised areas. So it's also great at capturing the pace of the crime. Like, yes. And this is all, it must be a matter of direction, editing, you know, the way in which it escalates, the way in which it evolves, the I way think in it's, which... I think it's... Concisions for four yes. parts is well, a real strength here, and I really appreciated how much they packed into this first yeah. episode, just as a pilot. Like it, and it's true to the case to do that. Like you know, you need to have a couple of the first major crimes in here to get a sense of how it evolved. And yeah, I mean, and the way in which you know the case changes when the first sex worker, the first non-sex worker is murdered, the way in which public perception shifts. Like it just, it really captured the entire dynamic of it as a mm. social event in such a powerful way. Definitely. I think the archival footage here is really incredible. It's really atmospheric. Yep. It captures, I, I, I suppose, to a certain extent, a lost Yorkshire now, yep. but but certainly a Yorkshire that is full of full of spaces of just oppor- where opportunistic crime can happen. And, and, and something is really reminding me of, like, one of my favourite TV showrunners the last 10 years, like Sally Wainwright. So she did Happy Valley... Last Tango in Halifax, um, Gentleman Jack, uh, Scott and Bailey, and all of her series are set in Halifax, in this area of Yorkshire. So I think in her series you see the residue of mm. this Yorkshire, and it, it made me realise how amazing she would be mm. to, you know, 
to do a fictional treatment of yes. um, the Yorkshire Ripper. How has this not been a movie or a like a dramatized? And, uh, have you seen TV Happy Valley? Have you seen Happy Valley? I've never seen Happy Valley. The, no. the, the streetscapes from Happy Valley are immediately recognisable here. Those really hilly, hilly kind of urbanised areas with you know like snaking streets with terraced houses down the side. So yeah. I, I I think if anybody was was primed to do an adaptation of it, I mean her whole. Her whole tourist signature is yeah, the residue of this Halifax in the present. Right, so, maybe it's echoed in, the, in those series. Echo, echoed in those heavily series. Influenced even, even Gentleman Jack, which is set in the 19th century, is also sent this area. But yeah, it's amazing that it hasn't been captured. Or maybe mm. it has. Maybe there's a telly movie or a television That's series. That's probably but, true, yeah. But no big budget thing. No. But I mean, you're right about the archival stuff. I mean, they fold in so much. I mean, it's a good counterpoint to Room 2801 in yes. that respect. Like, they fold in so much archival stuff, mm. but they never sacrifice the pay or the propulsion of mm. the investigation. Like you feel like you're investigating it in real time and you're living it as investigator and as resident yes. of the area and in I a think, really incredible way. I think also the, the, the pace of it and the mounting body count yes. really uh, recaptures for the, the audience that sense of the pressure that was placed on the police and Absolutely. politicians to capture to capture this. And in some ways this crime, as you later learn, as you keep watching, ushered in the modern policing force, yes. centralised, right. professionalised, yep. moving away from those sort of a county-based... Yes, because um, I've only seen the pilot, but the pilot ends, doesn't it, with a kind of someone who's brought in to take over the crime. There's a real con- conflict between, you know, urban and rural law yeah. enforcement, basically. Um, it's interesting, too, the way in which it dealt with, you know, it kind of destigmatizes sex work a bit as well. So, like, mm. it, it, it fo- there's a real focus. I mean, for the first part of the episode, it's continually foreground the fact that these women were prostituted. Like the word prostitute is used and bandied around and screamed from headlines. Yes. I was like, I wonder if they're going to address this. And then they bring in a, a, a journalist from the time who talks about the way in which the, you know, that 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 very designation of the women. I mean, you know, it's part of a true crime canon mm. where prostitutes are seen as you know, part of the issue was that prostitutes were seen as expendable to some extent. And it deals with that really effectively. Definitely, too. And there was some perception that this this killer was you know a moralistic, a puritanical yes, killer. Exactly, and he was in, he was cleaning up the streets. Yes. And he was almost like a vigilante, and yep. in that way, the police were, I wouldn't say sympathetic to him, but at least were strategically or willfully blind about you know his true modus operandi and motives really here. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting how, how quickly the police and media response changes when the first person who's not a sex worker is killed. Yes. And there's a, there's a really interesting element with a journalist who calls that out as well. Yes, um, and as you later learn, um, and again, full disclosure, I've seen mm. this whole thing and I watched it within a day. Mm. I binged this. Um, there's, a, there's a real sense of the way that the, the gender nature of this crime was yep. constructed that actually misled the police in a really serious way. Yeah, interesting. So really as this goes on, it becomes less about the serial killer and more, more really a story of about police incompetence and negligence. And, and that's, the whole, that's the whole kind of subtext of true crime, isn't it? I'm sorry, subgenre of true crime. Like, you know, it's like the true crime that focuses either on the expendability of female victims or on women who don't respond in the right way to victimhood. Yeah. You know, Lindy Chamberlain and stuff like that. So, yeah, um, without talking about it too much about where it goes, because I, I haven't finished it yet. So I don't oh, OK. I won't, I won't give um, you any spoilers because it's a, it's, a it's a good ride. Yeah. it's Look, it's one of the most accomplished true crime series mm. I've seen in a long time. When I say good ride as well, it, you know, there's obviously a tendency in true crime to be a little bit voyeuristic, yep. um, prurient in yep. your interest, but it, has, it does... It deals with this very sensitively yep. and gives these women, um, these victims, a lot of whom were sex workers, like a real sense of um, identity, personality and, and personhood as well. And that's always a tension in true crime, isn't it? Because, you know, on the one hand, you have the forensic and investigative element, but on the other hand, you have the kind of victimology. And you know, it's, often it's hard to strike a balance. And we've talked about two true crime books we've read um, Lost Girls, mm. um, about the Long Island serial killer and Green River Running Red about the Green River killer. And we both agreed that while they were powerful stories, neither of those books quite nailed that balance mm. between doing justice to the victims and investigating and, you know, and, and dealing with the more you know impersonal investigative elements of the case. And mm. So this, this part did a great job of that. It really gave the victims a voice and gave the victims visibility and destigmatized them as sex workers yeah. while also capturing that broad sweep of the investigation. So it, it makes sense that those two things kind of converge later mm. in the episode. And as it as you go through you mm. start you start looking at the the inner inner workings of the police force and yep. the, the different personalities that are mm. involved and 
in some ways as well, this sort of ushers in the end of the kind of sleuthing age as well, yes. because the, the, the person who's placed in charge of it views himself as a real sh- sort of Holmesian character. Yep. And uh, sort of, there's, there's a really great moment, I won't spoil anything, but it's a really great moment that involves a recording. Yep, right. And, um, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Like, it, 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 it's a kind of the idea of the serial killer as a figure works against that idea of the rationally an individual the, the rationally motivated crime perpetrated by the like the kind of comprehensible individual protagonist like yes the serial killer is much more explicable in terms of broader patterns about their space their habits their, do you know what i mean so yes it, that's it right. requires a yeah. different kind of mindset it was funny just as an aside in terms of the backdrop I, I got the impression this is a big rugby league part of england halifax it, like there were yes. so many super league like I, I made a list of it like they reference huddersfield Leeds, Bradford. Yes. I got the impression this is also just a random thing, but this is like the rugby league heart it of is. England, which which really spoke to that kind of just, you know, the, yeah. the portrait that they paint of the town and the area as yeah. well. Yeah, a very depressed working class area yeah. of, of Great Britain. And, and as you see, a lot of these women were forced quite brutally by yeah. the state into, yeah. because obviously, I suppose, they had to make a living. And there was, mm. there was quite a, uh, a shocking... I suppose resignation on the part of a lot of them that this was the only way they could they could make money, and that's part of where the film that that's part of what the series seems to be allegorising. Right, you have this vicious cycle where the women are, are forced into sex work to some extent, but then treated as expendable, and and also the former haunts of sex work um, suddenly being surrounded by like a new kind of post-industrial regime where a lot of the factories are dropping away, where the streets have become more dangerous. Yeah. Well, look, let's, let's, let's leave that. I, 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 don't <laughs> ha- I don't want to have any spoilers, but look, I'm a hard in for this and you obviously were as well. Yeah, I think, and I think this is reflected in how the popularity of this yes, show. absolutely. It has been on Netflix, you know, top 10 most wanted, oh, most watched shows for, for the last couple of weeks. So I, I completely understand. It's funny that there was some... Um, there was some Twitter furor I saw about someone saying, you know, it's it's so terrible to... Uh, there, was, there was some kind of very angry comment about something that happened in the show that was historic and accurate, and then someone commented, you do realise it's not about Jack the Ripper, right? So, <laughs> yeah. But look, no, it's fantastic. Um, I'm, I'm a hard in. Okay, on to our third show for the week. We're going to be doing the period drama that seems to be huge in Australia at the moment. I assume it is all over the world as well. Um, the Netflix series Bridgerton. So welcome to Shondaland, Billy. Welcome to... Sh- I, I was going to drop Shondaland first, but you got there before <laughs> me. So, oh, and actually, you ruined my reveal, but let's, let's just carry on. So um, basically, Bridgerton is a period drama. It's created by Chris Van Dusen, and it's based on Van Julia... Dusen. Van Dusen. I, I love Van Dusen's work. Um, didn't he work with Florence on one of her albums? <laughs> and it's set in the um, world of Regency London. It's based on a series of novels by Julia Quinn. I hadn't heard of these. I mean, I worked at a bookshop for many years, so I, I feel like I had a handle on all the really big series, but hadn't heard of these. And it's basically um, about a family, the Bridgerton family, um, who are trying to get their daughters married and you know married off, blah, 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 and their rivalry with another family, the Featherington. So on the face of it, it's a kind of fairly, fairly standard um, period drama um, about two families and two women in the families vying for marriage. It's got a bit of a kind of catty, gossipy edge. It's narrated by Julie Andrews. Yeah, um, interesting. It seems like the novel takes place as a series of gossip papers. Or there's yes. a, a gossip... Co- I re- Julie Andrews, Mrs. Whistle? Mrs. Whistle Pomp or something? <laughs> Whist- Whist- Whistle Down? Whistle Down. <laughs> um, I hope we see Julie Andrews in it because I love her. But the catch is, as you've already revealed, um, that this is a Shondaland production. So it's, it's kind of... You know, overlaid with that Shondaland style. What's uh, as someone who's never seen a Shondaland show, Billy? What is a Shondaland show? What characterizes a Shondaland show? When you go to Shondaland, what are you expecting? So, I think the best way to describe Shondaland is as a return to what we think of as pre-quality television. So, the the kind of all the cues of quality television: cinematic style, um, judicious pacing consummate control of tone all of those things are totally absent from Shonda um, Shonda Rhimes television series and seem to be so intentionally so they tend to be quite ludicrous um, (laughs) melodramatic very high like you know fast paced often with very intense kind of overacting. I mean, there's an element of hyperbole to them. It's not incompetence. I'm not yeah. criticising, but there's a deliberate, campy kind of hyperbole, which reminds me of, say, commercial television in the late 90s, early mm. 2000s. Do you get a sense that she is a strong showrunner? Like, she has a control, like, editorial control over these I, I shows? Think, I think she does. I mean, and here's the thing that I find paradoxical about it, because on the face of it, you know, I like the idea of the Shondaland style. You know, it, it, I mean, 
Shondaland kind of peaked at about the time that quality television was really starting to become exhausting. So mm. what's that? I mean, that show Rectified? Yes. I mean, that, that show to me is like the nadir of quality television, <laughs> like slow, turgid, <laughs> kind of, you know, we've talked about Defending Jacob. So she's a, she's a great counterpoint to Defending Jacob. Um, it's kinetic, it's fast-paced, it's silly, it's campy, and it's above all fixated on the entertainment factor. Mm. So quality television often forgets to be entertaining, or yes. can forget, late quality television can forget to be entertaining, whereas with Shonda it's always entertainment first and foremost. The thing is, you know, I've, having you know watched several of her shows, I'm not sure... It, it can work both ways, because sometimes that the sheer kind of energy, energy of it can kind of overtake itself and it all kind of crumbles down. So mm. Carl and I started watching both How to Get Away with Murder. We watched How to Get Away with Murder for quite a while. Right. And we also watched quite a bit of Scandal. And eventually they were so hyperbolized that it was hard really to build a sense of propulsion or narrative pace, mm. I thought. Or connection with characters, Or connection perhaps. with the characters. Um, have you seen... Um, much scandal. I have never so seen a show. If, show. If, if you want to see hyperbolized acting, watch. <laughs> but yeah, you know, on the face of it, I like the idea of. And the other thing I should have said, sorry, when I was introducing it, as a as a Shondaland show, um, half the characters in the series are African. I'm going to say black because it's not clear what what are whether African, African American. They're they're just presented as black in a decontextualized kind of yep. way. Um, and you know, in a way, what it's going for, you could maybe describe. You know, using the film Love Simon. Did you see the film Love Simon as an analogy? Yeah, I did. So that was a film that tried to kind of take gayness and make it unremarkable, yes. which is a remarkable gesture in some ways in itself. And this this tries to take kind of black characters in a period drama and make it unremarkable, yes. um, which is quite a novel gesture in itself. There's no explanation of race relations. There's no reference to race relations. Yes. Um, the debutantes. I have mixed feelings about this. Well, let me let me tell you how I feel that in a moment. Um, the way in which the the, the crux of the drama of the debutantes being presented to the queen, um, who is, is that a thing? Who is black? Were debutantes presented to the queen? Does the queen not have more interesting or better things to do? Well, I, and it's, I mean, the whole the whole series has it hyperbole. So, you know, we start with um, we start with the main contender to be the prime debutante for the mm. season, and as soon as she's passed over in the second place, all the men go to the other one. So again, that seemed unlikely to me that mm. you had, like she's still second hottest. Mm. Um, on the face of it. I mean, I really like the idea of this. I like the idea of Shonda Rhimes doing a period drama. And I, it was kind of quite fun to see a period drama where the main, the main crisis is just about who's hot. So <laughs> it, it, it's full of like 19th century thirst traps, like <laughs> leaving the ball without a dance, like not looking at someone directly in the eye. Um, so like it was, quite, it was quite fun to see a period, you know, instead of all the kind of like, oh, Darcy's so civilised. I mean, it's just like, no... This is just about who's hot, and that, that's a big thing in, in 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 Shondaland. The hot economy is very big. Like who's hot, who's not. Well, what is interesting here is that it's it reduces, I suppose, a lot of that that Austin, you know, ostentation Romance. and so forth, just down to a brutal sense of kind of marriage market. Yeah, brutal sense of competition exactly. based on appearances and wealth. It's really unfair. so. In this version, um, Lizzie went for Darcy. Because he was hot, <laughs> and I, I think my spot here as well is this. Yeah. This, in some ways, is a commentary on the online dating market. Yeah, online dating Absolutely. apps in some ways. Absolutely. You know, what you know, in, this is almost like the Tinder. It's Tinder of TV fight. shows. It's, it's Tinder, Tinder fight. fight. It's Tinder yeah, yeah, fight. I agree. I agree. Whereas you, you swipe left or, or right based yeah. on two criteria: yeah. their their economic prowess and their sexual prowess. Yeah, exactly. And hot um, and rich. I mean, I do quite like it. Like it's like if, if she was writing an Austen novel, it wouldn't be Sense and Sensibility or Pride and Prejudice. It would just be hot and rich. Yes. <laughs> That's the one. Thing that they do have in common all the characters yeah, so or, or hot and relatively rich yes. <laughs> rich enough <laughs> so although there is some some talk about you know being a being a uh, a lady and and these classes yeah. different yeah. i feel like class is not really no. what she's concerned and with I, I kind of i kind of do like that like you know you hear you hear so much about different types of privilege and they all exist but there is hot privilege yes like there's something <laughs> attract attractive privilege yeah yeah and perhaps that's why that's the reason why they've elected for this colorblind casting yep, in some ways exactly. because I, I'm not exactly sure but race is certainly not a plot point it's certainly never no, spoken about and that's you know, look that's something I liked about because it, it, there's been a trend in recent years to insert non-white characters often black characters into period dramas without any commentary so it happens in Amanda Yanucci is David Copperfield mm. and it happens in The Great have you seen The Great I have not seen which, it. which I loved so it's not a criticism of the show and there's something a bit odd about that in so far as you know paradoxically inserting black characters can actually erase the lived realities of race at that time so i mean the way i felt about david copperfield right was like Mm. you know if you're going to make a dickens film 
go at it, mm. but don't pretend that it's an exercise in diversity. No, know? that's right. But well, I mean, I think one of the issues with colourblind casting is that it erases race. Yes, and exactly. And it means that you cannot talk about race as a plot point. Yeah. Although, what I would say, I like this series because it is so ludicrously, absurdly counterfactual. Yes. Like, it's not like... It's not like the Inucci David Copperfield, which is trying to have its cake and eat it too, trying to be Dickensian, but no. include characters, Dickens, whatever. It's, it's, and, you know, again, what you were saying about the Queen being the central character, the whole thing has this ludicrously counterfactual quality, which I think actually yes. works, works quite well and, and is a more honest way to sub- do colourblind casting. Subversively as well, all yes. the characters with the most prestige, the most power, the most, uh, I suppose, racial bona fides yep. are all, are all uh, black. Although I them. also wondered whether, like, there was some kind of, like... I mean, yes, in a sense, but at the same time, something that's weird about it is the white female protagonist is still centred in some <laughs> way, too. So it's, it's like it's like the irreducible whiteness of but Darcy, drama. But Darcy is black. Darcy and is black. the, I suppose, the female yep. love interest as well is also, yeah. is also black. It's so. quite a comic idea, like... Um, you know, Darcy having to contend with like an alpha African American or African character. Like yes. Darcy would have no currency in this world. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. That's right. Well, yeah, interesting. Mm. Did you did you enjoy it? Did you find it entertaining? Well, look, here's the thing about it. And um, it's funny. I was one of my friends on Facebook um, who follows the podcast, Julia Later. Shout out. Made a good comment. She said, "I think you know we need more of these shows, but better." So <laughs> I, 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 I like the idea of it. But and I, I, I liked the gesture of it, and I liked it on paper. I just found it actually a bit dull to watch, surprisingly, <laughs> and very hard to follow. Yeah, so I found it very difficult. There's a lot of moving pieces. It's a bit shit. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> for want of a better word. I mean, maybe that's why I wanted Julia, um, Julia Andrews, to come into it. Like I was yes. like, you know, like here, here's another way of putting it: when you have a series where all the characters are hot, yeah. That's fine, but yeah. hotness doesn't necessarily equal charisma. No. So after all, you're watching a lot of hot, you know, people who are very objectively good looking. Yeah. But there's not a lot of chemistry going no. on, is there? Whereas, there's, there's, I like, at least, like, like, I think because Julie Andrews has such charisma, and because she plays the snarky gossip columnist. Yes. So like, just that's bring the in, best part. Bring her in and just get her to roast everyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> bring in Julie Andrews. Bring in, like the hills are alive. It should be, it should bring be in com- Comedy Central roast the Regency I period. I agree. Exactly. <laughs> that exactly. would be the best thing. Exactly. I think, I think now do me, do me. Yeah. Because weirdly, like. Yeah. Although it Shonda does period drama, yeah. it's actually not that irreverent, the plot. No. I mean, it is so colourblind, the casting, that what you have is yeah. actually a really basic it's, plot. The plot is really a bunch of Jane Austen cliches put in a blender and, yeah. you know, just served yeah. up. Like, you know, it was. it's really, it has a really, like, reheated Jane Austen fan fiction element and to it. And once you get over the fact that it's Jane Austen, but about hot, yeah. hotness, you know, the gimmick goes pretty quickly. I mean, you know, it's kind of funny. Have you watched much Downton Abbey? Uh, here, the and first, I mean, here and there. This made me really just miss like the campy silliness of Down. Like yeah. Down Abbey is silly in such a contagious way. The well, characters were entertaining. They were likable. I think a lot of the characters here lack likability. Well, they're just not. Well, they're not even characters. Yeah. Just, I mean, you know, even though Down Abbey, you know, is, you know, going for the same thing in some ways. Like it's just it has, it has a different kind of panache. I mean, whereas this, yeah, it's funny. Like it's 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 it has the humorlessness of the hot. Yes. <laughs> Don't you think? I mean, the people... Is, yes, that's every, right. Everybody in it is so obsessed with their own hotness yes. that it actually breeds a weird kind of seriousness. Yes. Everyone is so serious about who's hot or not. Yes. And actually, I think that's probably characteristic of the show as well. Not just the... Everything here is bigger, yep. brighter, more beautiful. Yep. In, it's the antithesis of the Austin adaptations yep. that I like the most that emphasise that that sort of slightly gritty down at heel quality of the Regency yes. period. Or yeah, that, I agree. that earthiness yes. that is an element in her yep. her fiction also as like well. The so persuasion adaptation. To me, the least, Lee sense. Yep. Like this is a show that aspires to be a screensaver. Yeah, absolutely. It's <laughs> so beautiful to watch. That, it, it is beautiful, but in a really antiseptic way. Absolutely. And uh, that's what I found about the characters as well. They were so, they were so just airbrushed. Uh, and I guess, you know, also beyond a certain point, I mean, it's novel to see a series about... Characters wishing they were hotter, wishing they were the hottest in the world, but it's not that interesting after a while as well. No. It's also not that risque, I have to say, for no. a series that is so meant to be so carnal. Yeah. I mean, I saw quite a few people on Facebook. This makes it sound like I'm on Facebook all the time. I do have a lot. <laughs> but a lot of people, you know, I saw on Facebook and Twitter were saying, you know, look out, it's very explicit. And I, I don't know about you, but the first episode is not that explicit. No, is maybe, it? Like, it gets, maybe it gets more blue. It's, it's sort of gesturing towards that. There's a bit of TNA that you do see. You know, when I think about what but I was... But a lot of it is actually focused on the, on the, on the men. Yep, on the men. On the and men, yeah. There, it is, you know, for a show that centres blackness ostensibly there is a lot of anxiety here about 
white guys looking at black guys. You think there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of anxiety. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, what I was hoping it would be. I think the closest was the. This is going to sound so pretentious when I say this. But I'm going to say it anyway. The Whit Stillman version of Love and Friendship. Oh, the Jane Austen. Sorry, sorry, <laughs> sorry. sorry. Um, Whit Stillman retweeted my review of that film, so I do feel, I do feel. But you saw that, right? Yeah. So yeah. that was a really yeah. buoyant, silly, irreverent yes. Yes. kind of, and quite you know, um, risque Austen adaptation. Yes. This is what, I was hoping this would have that pace, that sense yes. of campiness and absurdity. And I know it's a lot to ask. Yes. And, you know, this is not with Stillman. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, like, it, it, is, it is very flat. Yeah. Like. I have to say as well, a lot happens in this pilot, possibly to the detriment of the plot. Yes. It feels like the whole, you know, three-act structure was basically evolved. I, I, if I was reading an Austen novel, I feel like we would be two-thirds of the way through. I mean, I had no friggin' idea what was happening. <laughs> like, I, know, I mean, there's, there's like... I mean, one thing you will say about the mixed-race casting is because you have siblings and relatives that are inexplicably black or inexplicably white, you know, it doesn't follow race in any biological way almost. Mm. Like, there's no biological basis of race. Mm. It's actually quite confusing to catch up with who's related to who and who's affiliated with who. Did yes. you find that a bit? Like When you don't have visual cues or signifiers for, yes. for those... Because there it, seem to be characters who tricky. are, you know, like... Yeah. I mean... Yeah. I have to say, one thing that jo- I mean, Jane Austen never did mm. was have her protagonist punch a suitor in the face. No, that's great. So... And just let, let's <laughs> that, we're bringing the violence back to Jane Austen. And I said, let's that make it sound like I'm saying that, you know, blackness and whiteness have to be pure. It's just there are characters who appear to be related or affiliated with characters in ways that don't seem explicable even within the within the world that you do you know what I mean like yeah. it's, hard, it's hard to follow the connection the family connections the which, family you, connection. which you really do need you need a basic sense of narrative yeah. coherence for you to really yes. enjoy the yes. the repartee between characters for example Absolutely. i wasn't aware who was a suitor for the bridgerton girls and who was a brother no no, and that, that was that was def- definitely to the detriment of this of the the evolution of this. I guess plot. what I'm saying is like there are black characters and white characters who appear to be related, but no real mixed race characters, which is quite. Or yeah, well, there might be, other, but, but I, not I, that you seem to. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's, we're entering a minefield of yeah. of of different. But but it is it is. I'm it, not, it does it does detract from the actual. Yeah, I feel like I'm digging myself a hole. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that yeah. the, the family connection yeah. in a period drama, the family connections are nearly always yeah. obvious from the outset. In a way, they're not here. Well, like, I think I think. Colorblind casting is 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 a it's a very interesting issue. Like I understand why they do it. Obviously, mm. you know, so much of British televisual output is period pieces that yeah. if you're if you're going to strictly adhere to historical standards, then it is excluding a lot of people. But there are some detriments to it, and I think that maybe it needs to be raised that there are some issues with colorblind well, casting. So it does kind of, it yeah. does it does you know I don't feel it so much about this one, but with the David Copperfield, I mean, it does beg the question, right? I mean, if you're looking for diversity, why on earth are you doing another adaptation of Dickens? Exactly. You know exactly. Either so. do Dickens or you know the Dickens with it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I, I think I'm actually. I mean, I, I'm an out for this. Like, I, I, I like. Interesting. Idea. I thought you might have been in. Yeah, you might I, have been sneaky into this one. I think it continues like my my relationship with Shondaland generally. Like, yeah. I mean, I like it on paper. I like the idea of it, but actually, the execution leaves me a little bit cold. Mm. So you're a, you're a Ryan Murphy stamp, and not a. I'm Shonda. a Ryan Murphy stamp, but not a Shonda <laughs> stamp. And interesting. Yeah, that's just how I roll. <laughs> I'm out. Okay, and on to Archive Corner for the week. Drew, take us away. Yeah, so we've been going back in time, Billy, and really we're going back to really the very early days of television. And you really get a sense of the, when you watch this pilot that we are in the very early days of television as a medium. <laughs> well, p- partly because this pilot... I mean, that's... I think not, you don't intend that as a criticism, but it just it feels so continuous with cinema. Yes. Like, this is... Talk, talk, us, through, yes. talk us through the... Yeah, so our choice is Alfred Hitchcock Presents... And it's an American television anthology series created, hosted and produced by Alfred Hitchcock. It aired between 1955 and 1965. It encompasses a variety of genres, although largely they, they run the gambit of the, the Hitchcock wheelhouse of you know, dramas, mysteries, intrigues. Uh, it was renamed up the Alfred Hitchcock Hour in 1962 and where or is extended from about 25 minutes mm. to one hour long. So the pilot we watched was the the very first one, obviously, and it premiered on October the 2nd, 1955. So by that time, Hitchcock was already a household name, had already been directing for about three mm. decades. And at his peak almost was at, already, at this point. He definitely was already you know, recognisable just by his profile. Yep. And one of the characteristics of this show is the, the profile outline, the sketch, the introduction, and the sense that he was he was in a sense hosting it, and I think perhaps yep. this was maybe 
a legacy of the early days of television where you had a host mm. that introduced events to you rather than... Well, I think that happened with... I want to say that happened with The Twilight Zone as well. Yes. Is, it, is it Rod Serling who hosted yes. that? And this feels like it's it's a similar... It's a sim, I mean, did this predate Twilight Zone? It did. It so did by is, four years. So this yeah. is a model for shows like Twilight Zone, Black Mirror, the uncanny anthology TV series. Yeah. Yep. So it's almost like we weren't really sure what this medium was yep. or what it was going to be and we needed a guide to introduce it. So... Mm. Each of the episodes of Alfred Hitchcock presents mm. a bookended by Alfred Hitchcock's quite droll commentary on yeah, what's going to happen. Which is amazing. <laughs> so he walks in and then and then says, in a rather deadpan uh, but very sort of dryly acerbic way, introduces uh, himself, what the, mm. what the TV show is going to be mm. about, which I think is quite nice. Yeah. It was quite cosy in well, a sense. It, it reminded me of, you know, latter-day figures like, you know, Bill Collins. who like Yes. You know, that was a big thing when we were at high school. I remember, you know, taping films late at night you know, often art house films or films that you couldn't easily get on VHS and having the comfort of the host kind of introducing them. Mm, or David Stratton on SBS. David Stratton. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Margaret and David, we love you. We love you, Margaret and David. Uh, so, so there you go. What's interesting as well is that it's he comes back as well for a little epilogue. And that I love. So it's amazing. And we'll talk about the show, and the actual, um, you know, bulk of the show in a sec, but it's amazing. So it's incredible. Like, you know, Hitchcock directed the episode. Yes. And so it's like seeing a short Hitchcock film where Hitchcock comes back at the end yes. to provide his commentary on it. Explain it. it. <laughs> but also, we'll talk about how, you know, that it ends in a moment, but it ends in quite an ambivalent way. So Hitchcock comes back and gives, you know, a little moment of comically token moral closure. Yes. Like he says, well, here's what happened and here's what happened, so don't worry, it all ended in a very moral and responsible way. Yes. So it's, yes. It's, but, it's, but it says it in a way that's quite... Yeah, so wink, at, that, wink at the camera. Yes, wink at the camera and definitely undermining undermining his own message with yeah. his with his tone just, just i loved seeing hitchcock yeah. comment on one of his films after yeah. but let's talk about the bulk of the episode well, which hitchcock directs i mean I, th- I thought this was amazing it was it's really interesting yeah. isn't it so one thing i was really intrigued about this was firstly how many of these hitchcock directed mm. the answer is not very many at all right okay so only four in the first season and okay. very few thereafter and of the when it became the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, only one of those. Which, in a way, I like that because it makes it feel like you could really manageably watch them all. Yes. And if they're all as good as this, I, I want to watch them. Interesting. It is mm. interesting as well. So it's almost like Alfred Hitchcock creating a brand for himself, an extended universe. He was ahead of his time. <laughs> this is the Hitchcock this is the him. MCU but also in the like, 1950s. But also, it's amazing, you know, there's... It, it's it's just incredible how well his style translates to television. So, mm. you know, he you know he's renowned for his brevity and economy of his film. Like I don't think many of his films clock in at more than ninety minutes. Mm. And he had that famous saying, you know, that the length of a film should be proportionate to the strength of your bladder. So you shouldn't yes. have to go to the toilet. But this showed he could work like in a twenty-five minute format. Well, that was just as I... incredibly. I mean, this was like a fully fleshed. It could have been two things. It was either like an incredibly fully fleshed out Hitchcock film in only mm. twenty-five minutes. Or like the opening of an amazing lost Hitchcock film. Yes. It could have been either. Yes. It reminded me of the Kita Reserva, that Scorsese Hitchcock fragment. Remember Scorsese? Have you seen that? No, I have not. Scorsese, like they found, I thought you'd shown me that. Like they found some lost scene that Hitchcock never filmed and Scorsese completed it in like 20 minutes. Yeah, but I was was astounded at the quality of this. Yeah, well, it's it's very interesting, isn't it? I was very intrigued about... now, now that I knew he directed mm. it, also how it work in this in this twenty five minute format. Do you want to give a quick plot summary? Yeah. Just so, so, the, so it's called Revenge. The, the pilot is Revenge, and it concerns. It's a very very simple story in mm. some ways. A husband and his wife newly married. The the wife is slightly mentally unstable. Is just recovering from a mental breakdown. Mm. They move to a, a trailer park mm. in California. The husband has a job as an engineer. Mm. We open with them just talking around the, the breakfast table, their newlyweds. Mm. The husband goes to uh, goes to work and leaves his wife alone for the first time. He's a bit concerned about that, so gets his neighbour to check mm. in on her. When he returns at the end of the day, he discovers that she's been assaulted by a mysterious salesman. Mm. Now, I don't know how much we reveal post that, but um, it's a very simple story. Mm. Interesting, and a lot of this does hinge on the classic Hitchcockian twist at the end, mm. which makes you revise everything that's gone before. Yeah, but what I loved about this was like, you know, although you have that Hitchcockian twist at the end, it doesn't feel like the ending exhausts the strangeness of the episode. No. So it, there are moments where it feels like the episode could go in three or four different directions, and it's full of like classic, like classic Hitchcockian moments where an object yes. or a look has some incredible kind of pregnancy. So something that happens, for example, is... I mean, and there's kind of an ellipsis between the two halves, right? So mm. first half, man goes to work, woman invites neighbour over, 
Then there's an ellipsis. Mm. And then woman wakes up and says she's been assaulted. And just before the ellipsis, there's a moment where the neighbour looks at an object weirdly in her house. And, you know, that that doesn't seem to have anything to do with the plot. Mm. But it's such a great MacGuffin. Yes. And it, it has such a kind... It gives the whole... It's just one of many details that give the episode such a strangeness that even the ending doesn't fully resolve things, which is why it feels like this could be the beginning of a television... Oh, sorry, of, of an entire film. Yes, that's right. Um, and one thing as well, I mean, you've got... Although this is a very early early show in the 1950s, like, there's something incredibly modern about Hitchcock's sensibility, yep. the sense that there is there is some... You know, horrific repressed subtext in this in this in this marriage. You know, mm-hmm. the wife's mental instability. You know, the husband's ability to sort of paper it over. It feels like the husband, in some way, is the antagonist. Yes, or the marriage is definitely what's like and pathological his... about. But it can't be. A... I mean, he uses the kind of the more censored, like more censored element of television. Like he, he captured. What am I trying to say? I imagine at the time that there were more limitations into what could Definitely. be shown on television, but limitations are such an asset for Hitchcock. Yes. Because he works so well with innuendo and yes. subterfuge and implications. So yes. It's even more Hitchcockian in some ways than a, than a Hitchcock film yes. in that respect. Yes, that's right. And in some ways, this moment of kind of horrific violence mm. in some ways is sort of a quilting point for the, Absolutely. For the marriage as well, sort of stitches together and, and that, that's, their marriage. That's what I mean when I say that this, this ellipsis in the middle of the film, it feels like a whole lot of different psychological things converge on it yes. that are never fully resolved by the episode yes. but in such an incredibly pregnant way yes like I, love the way, I love way. the way you just hear sirens at the end and then Hitchcock walks in and with his it's very wonderful. droll commentary says and of course you know, he was indicted yep. you know convicted and sentenced and absolutely <laughs> I'm also going to drop the B-bomb um, the Andre Bazan bomb like he, I, read, he, I read some stuff by him recently about television and the impression I got with it, a lot of critics at the time, you know, whenever you get a new medium, you have people saying, here are the rules of the medium. Mm. And critics and, you know, sh- like, you know, executives and producers had this idea that television had to be much closer to theatre and television couldn't be as expansive as cinema and television had to be more contained. I mean... Something, something you know, by contrast, something that's incredible here is the sheer scope of it. Mm. We have scenes set inside. We have scenes set in the trailer park. We have a driving scene. We have a scene set in a hotel. Like, the amount of place he packs into 25 minutes. Yes. And the, the roving, fluid nature of it. It's like watching an entire film in less than half an hour. Like, it's so... It's as expansive as any film. Definitely. And, and more I've... expansive than some films. Exactly. I mean, you, you're concerned when you're dealing with this this early early sense of the yep. medium is that you know it's it's a single camera show as well yep. so yes, that it would exactly. be, be very stage bound yes. or place bound but it like you say one thing that I think does distinguish Hitchcock and make his style so distinctive is that mobile camera it's so mobile important. camera and, work and, yeah. and even just the genius of that trailer park like you can hear the sea nearby there's mm. people around like it's such a porous space mm. and then at the end driving around the city. It, it's mm. just full of these transitions and moments that make it as fluid as, as any film. Yeah. Like it's, it's just a, like I, it really exceeded yeah. my... I mean, something else too is like... Something else I thought worked really well is like you think of television like the signature of cinema is like drama, right? Mm. Whereas the signature of television to some extent has to be normality. Mm. Like television has to be normal. It has to be quotidian. It has to be something you're used to in your living room yes. or your, your family half. But Hitchcock works so well with height and normality. Yes. So like the first 10 minutes here, like not a lot happens. It's dramatic. No. But because you know you've only got 15 minutes to go and it's called revenge, everything's so eerie. Yes. Everything's so uncanny. It's like, this seems so normal. This seems like such a normal television. Where Every, can this go? Everything is meaningful. And everything is this. possible. Yes, yeah. everything is meaningful. Like you say, pregnant with meaning. You know, the fact she's a she's a ballerina. Yes. Yeah, there's, a, there's a very interesting sense of, there's just something awry in this. He's like, he loves suggesting that something uh. is awry. Like, the, the look that the neighbour gives her when she's stretched out sunbathing. That, that is... Those, it doesn't really come back into it, no, but it's, there's just something... You get a sense that, yeah, so much is working as, as subtext. And I'm, I'm, just because we're, you know, I'm in 2021 and I'm on a roll, I'm going to drop the F-bomb here. I'm going to drop Freud. Like, this is like the psychopathology of everyday life, yeah. right? This is like everyday life... Yes. Is, ...is inherently strange. Yes. And inherently pathological. So just... This is almost like a Hitchcock film that has notionally a plot. Yes. It's notionally a twist, but really it's almost just like watching a couple of people in their everyday routine. Yes. But the way in which his camera works makes everything that's normal 
everything that's regular seems strange. Yes. It's like if just Hitchcock shot half an hour of normal people. Yes. It would be weird. <laughs> so it's just it's I thought it was yeah. I thought I, it was incredible and a great choice. And as well for these this early I found this incredibly watchable. Like it's oh. just moment to moment it's it's really absorbed drew me in even though the first 10 minutes of this occurs around a breakfast table the pacing is brilliant i was yeah. like yeah I did, there's just something about history i'd be very intrigued to see whether the quality is maintained all the way with through. the other directors um, i know that some of the the episodes that were not directed by hitchcock actually what did win awards wow so it, it i think it'd be a really interesting series to to revisit or to watch all the way through yeah and that could maybe even be a fun kind of post pilot club thing watching one one a week. I should say that our post-pilot ritual at the moment is we're working our way through the Happy Madison back catalogue. <laughs> we're starting that. We'll let you know how that's going. All the best stuff. But it's you know it's funny, isn't it? I mean, just to kind of finish up, so like you know, you're so much hand wringing about how do you make television cinematic? What is television? What's good television? Here you have Hitchcock in pure Hitchcockian style, just doing it. Mm. I mean, remember he, he had some anecdote. He said where whenever he read a script. He saw all the shots in advance and planned them, and then making the film was like an afterthought. Mm. This feels like that. It's like this is just somebody who matter-of-factly and masterfully has nailed television. Yeah, totally I think, nailed television. I, I think as well, to a certain extent, a lot of these these episodes, because they're standalone, work as short films. Absolutely. And short film is a medium that I'm often very disappointed in. Yes. Because it does often prioritise style over over plot. Yeah. yeah. So, in in a certain way, you could read these as as short films. Absolutely. And, well, that, that, that's how I'm going to do the Hitchcock ones. Like, yeah. Regardless of whether I watch the whole thing, I'm going to watch all the Hitchcock ones, I think, mm-hmm. in order. Yeah. So look, I'm, I'm a hardy and this was a great choice. Yeah, and so uh, what do you got for me, Billy? Look, look I'm, I'm... I'll raise the bar. I'm going, I'm, I'm going a little bit further back than I have previously. You're not going to give me According to Jim, are you? I'm not going to give... <laughs> we are going to come back to According to Jim. Um, According to Jim got me through um, a, a part of my life where it was absolutely indispensable. Um, <laughs> there was just a time when... It, 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 look, it was everything. I can't... I can't... We will come back to According to Jim. Um, I'm going back to the 70s. You know I love my sitcoms. We're yeah. going back to one of the formative sitcoms, the Mary Tyler Moore Show. Oh, interesting. Which is okay. considered one of the you know, best sitcoms ever made. It's meant to have like you know, great characters, great place. Um, and also Betty White is in it. Oh, so yeah, okay. early, early kind of, I think Sue Ellen is her character's name. So I've been curious to watch it for a while. I have checked after Lilyhammer that it's available on YouTube in a watchable version. Right. Um, I, I kind of feel like it's also a show I would really like. Like okay. I've, I've seen some episodes here and there on YouTube that were really watchable. So Mary Tyler Moore in the Mary Tyler Moore show next week. <laughs> All right. Looking forward to it. So that's what we've got lined up. Um, we It's been a bit irregular recently um, over the holidays. We're going to get back to a regular Thursday broadcasting yeah. from now on. So we'll see you soon. I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Pilot Club. <laughs>